Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me, joined alongside, as I am every week, by Grail Hallett, the Charlie Rose of soccer talk shows, without the sexual harassment uh, allegations, of course, unless, Sam, you have something to tell me. Also, <laughs> with Sam Griswold, our OTB producer, journalist, and our very own Syria uh, expert. Today on OTB, we talked to a really fascinating guy, Mike Garrett, uh, an old teammate of mine. He was a standout college player at George Mason. He left college early to go into MISL, played for the old Memphis Americans, a player, then a player coach in the NPSL, where he, I was coached by him. Um, you know, a lot of, the, as I talk about uh, on the show quite a bit, a lot of the guys who are sort of uh, involved in soccer moving forward in this country were all part of that, uh, that generation in the mid 80s to, uh, to mid 90s when there was uh, pro soccer was really hurting here in this country until the 94 World Cup. Well, uh, he was my player coach in Kalamazoo for a year uh, plus and uh, stayed in, in Kalamazoo, stayed with the game, uh, started to become an entrepreneur. Um, coaching, but also building indoor facilities. Now he's uh, the, the biggest indoor facility operator in the country. Let's play soccer is his, uh, is his company's name. And his name is Mike Garrett. And uh, we have him on today. So he's uh, really sheds a, a wealth of information. He talks with us guys about, you know, developing players with the indoor facility model, with the futsal model, with how it translates to outdoor. His son is a professional player playing in Finland. So uh, a really interesting talk about how we can develop better players in this country. So it'll be nice uh, to get caught up or was nice to get caught up with Mike Garrett, uh, my old buddy, my old teammate and my old coach. So guys, before we get to Mike and the news of the day, uh, what are you over today on over the ball? I'll jump in. Um, I'm over players reacting like they've been, you know, grievously wronged when a pass <laughs> hits off the referee and, you know, breaks up whatever idea they had going. Um, I'd like to point out a few things. One, uh, there's only one official on the field compared to a sport like hockey, which is a much smaller area. And there's four guys on the ice. And two, he's usually or she is wearing a hot pink jersey in the middle of everything um i just think the referee is part of the game if you pass it off the ref i mean i know they have the new rule where you maintain possession which i think is probably fair but you don't need to put your head back and roll your eyes like you know something's just been stolen yeah it's like another i always he saw it as another another defender if uh you know yeah. he's part of the field so uh, and, and they I try think to get it out happened. of the way twice in my entire career maybe in the thousands of games that i've ever played going back to a kid that i actually hit the referee with with a pass yeah i just like that the, you know i just like the whole yeah the dumb the demonstrative sort of yeah. overreaction by the player. It's like, shut up. Come on. Yeah. And getting back to what you said, Sam, I mean, hockey referees, the puck's going at a million miles an hour and they, they do an amazing job of keeping out of the way. Yeah. Right? Or if it does hit them, yeah. people just understand that's part exactly. of the game. I mean, yeah. But in outdoor soccer, you're in the middle of the pitch. You can't jump up on the side of the boards like the hockey referees do. You know, yeah. those guys well, soccer are players are overly dramatic in every as, as we all yes. know <laughs> as players. Well, I don't think Americans are, but I think we've learned to be, that way a little bit yeah. from what's going on but i think a lot of that uh that crazy over-the-top behavior not just from the referee you know knocking the ball into him but i think a lot of it because of var is uh and not, but just you know so many camera angles on players you look like a jerk you didn't get hit in the head he touched yeah. you in the back of the neck and you acted yeah. like you were jfk getting shot from a grassy knoll you know it's ridiculous <laughs> so all right uh grail what are you over today and over the ball 
So uh, I'm over, and I have to put myself in this category as an admission, I'm over uh, Real Madrid's Karim Benzema not getting the credit that he's due. You know, I've always had this perception of him, which is really not fair, of being kind of a lumbering number nine. I just never wow. thought he was that good. Okay, so he scored in, um, in uh, Real Madrid's 3-1 win over Atalanta, and he became only one of five players to score 70 goals in Champions League. Five players. Can you name the other four? I'm going to go into Sam mode here. They're becoming the quiz master. Yeah. So who are the other Lewandowski? Yeah. Messi, Ronaldo, Lewandowski. The other one's a little tough to get. Um, but he's a great player, a uh, great Spanish player. Spanish player. David a, Villa? A, a, a one named, a one named, nicknamed player. Xavi. Yeah. Iniesta? No. No. It's uh, Raul. Ah, of course, oh, well, like, yeah, we should have known. Yeah, we should have known that guy. But I mean, that, that that's pretty heady. True, comp- yeah. that, that's heady company for Benzema yeah. to be in yeah. there. And, and again, I just I've kind of sloughed him off, and I just I, I've got a I've got oh, he's a, a finisher. Really, he's a finisher, man. He really is. good finisher. Yeah, I, I'll say watching Real Madrid this week. I don't watch them very often, but I I kind of like the way they play more. And I know they haven't been great this year, but they were pretty good over yeah. the two legs against Atalanta. And I sort of think they play more of a team game now without Ronaldo. And Benzema's a big part of that as the, the target mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little later, Sam, because it's yeah. interesting to see what happens with Ronaldo, um, you know, moving forward. There's a lot of talk. And as always, you have your your ear to the, to the, uh, to the ground, listen to what's happening there. We have a, an Olympic... Uh, qualifying game today this goes out tomorrow so uh, we can't really talk about it but talk about grail about with the significance of it and what's happening yeah so uh, J- jason christ is going to be taking 20 players to costa rica for tonight's qualifier then we've got the dominican republic on the 21st and mexico on the 24th all olympic qualifiers so you know this is the u23 team as we were taught as we've talked in the past you know, it's a real challenge because you've essentially got two, you've got the World Cup squad, which is kind of unto itself. And then you've got the Olympic team, which is the U23 team. It, when the women's game, it's a little bit different. The Olympic team is, for the most part, the same as the U.S. women's national team that will be representing us in the next World Cup. So right. it, it, it presents an interesting challenge for U.S. soccer because it's very hard, I think, to promote the Olympic team because so many of them are, are unknowns. And they're not going to, there's not going to be that continuity between that team and the team that ends up playing in qualifying. So anyway, yeah, you're, so, just, you're just developing numbers and keeping an eye on players. And this is a yeah. good problem to have. I mean, a problem yeah. we haven't always had in the past. And it's so, not to say that there wouldn't be some Olympic players that would end up on the U S men's national team for world cup qualifying, but not to the extent that it does in the women's game, which is there's huge overlap. Uh, Giannis Musa currently playing for Valencia commits to the USA instead of England, Ghana, or Italy. Wow. That's a rich background that he has. That's a big coup uh, for the U S over England. Um, talk about that a little bit, guys. I mean, this is one of those situations. It's almost like Sergino Dest where they have uh, Musa was born in New York, uh, Ghanaian parents and 
raised in England and Italy. I mean, he's like, he's like a walking Benetton ad, um, <laughs> but he made his debut for the U S in 2020 at age 17. I thought he played pretty well. Sam, we were talking about that earlier. You liked the way he played, right? Yeah. He kind of, I mean, he certainly wasn't on my radar before that game, but I, I love the way he played. And uh, I've said many times, I think it's really important for U S players to start playing in places like Spain, Italy, you know, more technical, not, you know, not completely, but generally more technical tactical leagues um so I, yeah I, I think it's great i mean i yeah I, it's a tough call i don't know how we got him but we'll take it i mean yeah but between between him and dest burhalter has gotten some had some very good fortune mm. over the last six six months to a year which is great mm. i'm not begrudging him that at all but he's starting burhalter's starting to have some really really good talent to play right. with all well, you got Kenny and Tyler Adams. Yeah. Now it's a matter of getting them on the same pitch together. Right. That's the biggest challenge is Pulisic. they've rarely played together. Yeah. But you know, like the last cycle, we were just talking about Pulisic. Now we have other players to talk about. And then yeah. he's just sort of, um, these are just sort of add on extras that, uh, that are enjoyable. And, you know, I think part of it speaks to uh, people looking at the United States as a place where it's the future again with, with, uh, with soccer, um, a young player like that. Why would you, you know, England is probably there's so much entrenched in England yeah. with you know certain players probably you know get looks that, that don't still deserve them, but they're based on their past reputation or whatever. That a lot of these young players look and they're like, well, you know, nobody's going anywhere for a while. I think I have a future with this U.S. team. Yeah, yeah I, I like just to think, think. Yeah, I'm sorry, Sam. I was just going to say more players for kids to identify with, right? These multicultural right. players kind of a rainbow of players on the U S men's national team now, which is great for pulling people and, in. And what's more American than that, right? We're all immigrants, the land of immigrants. Sam, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, I feel like they, like you're right, Grail, they knowing that they can be a part of this and will be a part of it for the long term. It's uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fun when you have a good young core that all, you know, likes to play together and gets along. And I feel like they, they recognize that something special is going on with the U S mm -hmm. team right now. So again, he could have picked Ghana. He could have picked England, could have picked Italy and he picked the lonely little United States. So all it is hard. Um, I mean, it's also smart on his part because frankly, you know, he, he was not going to see as much play playing time if he had chosen England because they have a lot of really, really good young midfielders and there's going to be a little yeah, less We're, we're going to win a World Cup before England. We're going to win a World okay. Cup before England. And speaking <laughs> of England, uh, Phil Foden uh, stayed on his feet and was actually punished for it, guys. What did you think of that? Well, th this is so near and dear to Sam's heart and I thought about him immediately when this thing cropped up. Uh, yeah. They were playing, City was playing Southampton last week in the Southampton keeper, keeper clearly you know like almost took him down and Foden God bless him stayed on his feet but neither the ref John Moss nor VAR called a penalty kick and there was there was outrage I mean you can imagine Pep's reaction you can imagine the city players but then just collectively in the soccer community guys like James Madison who plays for Leicester went into social media and says you know what's gonna what's the incentive to stay on your feet these days and I know it's something that Sam's right. been talking a lot about on the show and, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, I think we all subscribe to the idea that you don't try to game the system and gaming the system to me is just flopping and going down and whatever. And here's a case where Phil Foden does the sportsman like thing in my mind, and he doesn't get rewarded for it. 
Right, but isn't it a um, you know a play on situation where it's just you know, play the advantage? And if uh, that's what I, th- I wish they would do, play the advantage. But if it doesn't turn into a goal scoring situation, then you award the PK because he did hit him in the box. But they reviewed it and they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think some more some more common sense needs to come into it, like you're saying, um, Kevin. And I I love how it works in basketball and hockey. You know, you're rewarded if you fight through a foul and uh, you know keep playing. And I don't know how we would get to that in soccer. I've thrown out the idea before of like you know what if they did the kind of delayed call thing like in hockey. You know, you someone's foul, but he stays on his feet. The arm goes up. It's your ball until you know the other team touches it. Then you get the free kick. Yeah. I, I don't know. That might lead to like you know more stoppages and uh, back and forth which which could be weird but it's but tough I, think, I mean yeah i don't i don't understand the there's no incentive to not go down well yeah and the amazing thing is sam that in this same match mm-hmm. laporte the defender for city gent like gently tugged on vestergaard's shirt mm-hmm. and had a penalty called again and vestergaard did the writhing and pain thing like somebody had thrown a spear at his back mm-hmm. and he's on the ground and he was awarded a pk which was very suspect and VAR didn't overturn the decision uh, see, this, because again, yeah. once the ref makes the decision, it's very rarely overturned. See, this is my problem too with yeah. VAR. I know we want to keep, you know, the, the importance of the ref on the field and I'm all for the call on the field having, you know, some kind of weight, but you know, you see a guy go to the monitor and you have to think sometimes, okay, he's not going to change that because it's not a clear and obvious error. There was contact, but if he were looking at this for the first time on this screen, he would probably go the other way, he or mm-hmm. she. Um, and so I think the, the bigger question is, and maybe this opens up a can of worms we don't want to get into, but why, if you're called to the VAR, are you not going and starting from scratch? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things, and you mentioned it, Grail, was the the players seem to uh, sort of supervise this. If a guy goes down for no reason, Players get pissed. You know, it really is. You know, um, Sam, you sent an interesting article by Rory Smith. You know, first of all, this guy writes really fantastic articles uh, pretty much weekly, a couple articles a week. Well, two or three a week. Yeah, that we're talking about. And I mean, it's great. New York Times is finally covering the game like it deserves to be covered, you know, to to reflect the numbers and the participation levels in this country. But um, Rory Smith talks about how everyone is so, and you're one of these guys, Grail, reticent to any sort of change at all and to the game <laughs> i'm one of the guys who's reticent about change well you don't like any rule changes i'm generally. a purist i'm a purist right, right no doubt and and i think you know look i think some things need to be tried and examined and you know realigned and because you know here we are we're on this struggle but you know then you have a game like baseball that didn't make changes for long long periods of time and it, it probably hurt them in in retrospect right and then when they try to make changes maybe it's it's a little late in the game so i think I don't like what the NCAA does with soccer, with the platoon subbing and they, they, you can't keep the clock on the field because that's a person who didn't play the game, who doesn't trust that. It's, uh, you know, all the faking, the driving, you know, trying to run out the clock. Uh, people don't understand that. It's like, no, you, you, you know, soccer's got to keep moving. So I don't know. So I'm, I'm happy about that. But what do you think of, of Rory's article and, and uh, some of the changes they want to make in Champions League? Well, yeah, his, his main point was about the Champions League and these proposed changes from um, Andrea Agnelli, who's the um, chairman at Juventus and also, I think, the head of the European Club Association. That's so correct. He represents all the, you know, the interests of all the big clubs, basically. And um, this is, 
we've been hearing a lot about, you know, what's going to happen with the champions league. And he sort of rolled out these ideas, which were, um, I think you have the exact numbers, but it's a 32 team league where everyone plays each other 10 times. And yeah. From 32 to 36. Okay. 32 to 36. And then there's these legacy places, which I think is really what people are most worried about because they worry that'll, you know, really kill the sporting merit aspect of getting into the champions. League. Yeah. That doesn't um, seem fair. Yeah, so he's he's adding games, right? More games, mm-hmm. more TV, more money. Mm-hmm. And then the top 16 teams out of the 36 qualify based on a table, right? So you play mm-hmm. 10 games and then at the end of it you got your top 16 and one plays 16 and two plays 15 and whatever. Mm-hmm. But the cynical side of me says <laughs> that the timing is not coincidental that Juve his club had just gotten bounced by Porto. And yeah. on 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 uh, goal on away goals, and it would pr- it would prevent things like that from happening because you would have a body of work that you were being judged on, mm-hmm. and you would be less inclined to be bounced by a lesser club. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so uh, on the Pulisic watch, we get uh, you know he came in late sub, had an assist, but it just uh, it's tough times for him He's in like Chelsea. Super. I mean, this is the thing that I fear is. Tuchel's put it out there. He said, you know, I saw him play great when he was playing for me at Dortmund. He was great coming on late, you know, 15, 20 minutes. So he comes on in the 76th minute. He's not good. You know, he has a few bad touches. He falls over once. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this isn't going well. And then he had a great assist in stoppage time to Emerson. So he got a nice – and Tuchel numbers. came out at the in. end of the game and wrapped him in a big hug and stuff. But, you know – I was saying to Sam off air that it's, it's one of those like catch 22s of he's got to play well enough when he gets in to, to make sure he gets minutes. But if he plays well as the super sub, that's what he's in that role. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think the thing, I mean, that that's a very specific player and a really important player, you know, someone who can come off the bench and be explosive, take advantage of, you know, tired legs, more open space on the field. Um, So that's a really important player, but I don't know if that's where we want, you know, our USA (laughs) number 10. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I was happy about Sam is when he came on as a sub, he was, he, he kind of started on the right, but he was more central. And in the previous game, Tuchel had started him at right wing back. Now, again, that's Mm -hmm. essentially right half given the formation that they play, Mm -hmm. but But he's just, I just don't think he's good on the right. He's better on the left coming in yeah he cuts in and yeah cutting in and and he just looked a little bit lost on the right so anyway at least he got some minutes which was good hey sam a little syria news i guess you want to talk about juventus a little bit and ronaldo but um also brian reynolds the 20 year old makes his debut for roma yeah this was good to see he played uh the final half hour for roma this past weekend against parma um they lost the game to nothing which wasn't great and uh, i didn't actually see this but from what i've read they roma were kind of a bit lost in general but um Mm -hmm. good to see he got out there for his uh his debut um yeah otherwise i mean the the main talk in city right now is all about the the latest champions league failures um juventus Mm -hmm. as we mentioned already and then atalanta and lazio going out people thought atalanta may have had a chance to go through lazio were pretty much done uh so there's a lot of soul searching going on um and there's a lot of speculation as to the future of ronaldo and asking you know is he has he really helped this Juve team that got him essentially to try and win the Champions League? And they've actually done worse in the Champions League since. Well, you know, there. it reminds me of like a Michael Jordan, where you you have 
if he plays a certain way, the players around him don't play as hard or as efficiently as they do. You're kind of watching the player or trying to get it to him instead of playing the game the way it's supposed to be played. Yeah, so. I think, you know, Saudi last year said it really well. You know, people were asking him, like, well, what sort of system are you going to run? Are you going to use the formation you always use? And he said, you know, when you're coaching a player like Ronaldo, your job is almost just to, like, set him up you know you're right. just putting players in position around him and maybe that maybe the Gretzky analogy would be a better yeah. Um, yeah so so Ronaldo did have uh over the weekend a hat trick in the first 33 minutes against Cagliari um so he'd been you know pretty heavily criticized for his performance in the Champions League the week before so that was that was, that was a statement a, then he came back with a hat trick yeah yeah and yeah. you know obviously we know he's a fantastic player and capable but <laughs> it's a hell of a way to get back at people just come out and it's like it's like Babe Ruth pointing to the left center field wall. Yeah, yeah. but I, but I don't know what's going to happen beyond this year. I think I think Juventus are at a real crossroads where they have. I'd to... love to see him back in Manchester United. I don't know what the odds are of that, but it would be exciting to see him back. You know, from whence he came mm-hmm. uh, yeah. as a young man. Hey, so I want to get to the Mike Garrett interview, but uh, Grail, give us an update on the World Cup uh, 2022 in Qatar. I, I've read big numbers coming out of there, huh? Yeah, I guess not so I, all bad news. No, so I was reading about. Um, you know, and we're going to have him on the show coming up next week. Actually, John Christick is president of Premier Partnerships, and they they actually sell VIP hospitality to Cutter 2022. And yeah, the, the, thus far the hospitality, which would you know include tickets and flights and hotels and parties and stuff, um, the it, it, the revenues are exceeding 260 million, which is uh, far better than Russia 2018 and about 20% higher than Brazil in 2014. So despite all the challenges that you would think that would come with Qatar, which is, you know, you've got the human rights issues, but then you have the time of the year, you have the distance you have to travel to go there. And the fact that some people may just not, you know, see that as a, as, as a desirable destination, they're doing, they're doing really well. And, um, you know, the, the other interesting thing on World Cup, I'll just mention it quickly, is that the South American team, you know, they're having a huge problem with COVID in South America. So it looks like they're going to have to play their qualifying games in Spain and Portugal, which makes sense because there's so many players from South America who play in those leagues. So they're right. already over there. And then culturally, they're they're pretty well Close aligned on. with South America. So anyway, that but that's a big deal, having to oh. play over there. They're going to have to they're going to have to play the games at like 10 o'clock at night to accommodate the audiences, TV audiences back in South America. It's crazy. It's just, yeah. just uh, and, and COVID just covers everything. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. We're still, we're still dealing with it. We're going to be dealing with it for, the, for a couple of years, I bet, after this. So, all right. Uh, good stuff, guys. Um, getting us up to date on everything uh, happening around the world. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to uh, Mike Garrett, former player, coach, and now entrepreneur. You're listening to OTB. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And buy Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, uh, boy, this man fills a lot of uh, roles for me. He was uh, a guy that I played with in the indoor league. He coached me in the indoor league. He's uh, gone on to do great things in the in the business world. Uh, Mike Garrett, welcome to Over the Ball. How are you today, man? 
I'm, I'm good after several years of therapy, after having to coach Kevin Flynn a little bit, uh, I've recovered and things have worked out pretty well. Oh, that great Irish temper that I had. I think, I think the year that you coached me, Mike, I think I led the league in penalties. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm you, pretty sure. Maybe actually. you were up there. That was fun. So look, so, um, you know, I said a little bit about this in the intro, but, uh, you were a college player at George Mason. You left after your sophomore year, right. After playing and uh, it was in the, the middle of it's, it's, it, it. Let's jump into that. So I played two years. I was part of a, a class that came in in se- I graduated high school in 79 from McLean and I went to George Mason and, uh, well, there's a group of guys that came in in my class that could play a little, and yeah. uh, and we were all passionate. And uh, the, the team at that time was lower level division one. We had a coach that was driven, uh, Richard Broad. We had a group of players now that the core that came in that kind of became sort of the foundation. And we went from a lower level division one team to, to the next year. I think we were 10, three and three ranked in you know the top 20 for most of the year. At that time, the conference we were in the, the Capital Conference here in D.C. had Howard, which was a national power, won a national championship. American. And they didn't have a they didn't have an American player within 100 miles of them, though, did they? No, they did oh. not. Uh, yeah. American University was very good. George Washington was good. And we were we were getting there. And uh, so we had a really competitive schedule. And then the MISL draft is because, you know, obviously it wasn't built around American players, even though they had a draft. I think they did it just right. because, uh, well, why not? How the other sports do it? Yeah, was in the PR middle movie, of it was at the end of October, which is the middle of the college season, basically. So my junior season, we were ten wins, zero losses, three ties in the top ten when that draft occurred. And so I decided to go pro and go hardship, as they call it at the time. It's pretty controversial at the time. I think probably one of the first players to do that. But you know, now you got kids leaving straight from high school to MLS teams, academies, and guys leaving after one year of college soccer constantly because we have a different structure, a different system built out. So, yeah. All right. So I, I try to talk to these guys a little bit about, and you know, the young people that you talk to, they do not remember the dark, dank days of the mid eighties <laughs> to, to the early nineties of co- of soccer in this country. Right. It, uh, it just was there was nowhere to play. And I, when I tell people I played in Kalamazoo and in Dallas, it's like, what? There's a team there. And, but right. it was the only place to play. And what I'm always uh, reminding people of is, boy, a lot of the infrastructure that currently, you know, uh, pushes U.S. soccer forward are guys like yourself who played in the league. Uh, yeah, Mike Noonan played in the league at Clemson. Yep. They're ranked number one in the country right now. Uh, Dave Mazur at St. John's won a national yep. championship. Sasha uh, Shirovsky, who we played against, and I probably went in over the ball a couple of times. Right. But um, th- these guys, and now Keith Tozer, who was a coach at Louisville, and you know he's gone on to sort of spearhead the futsal movement in this country. Um, I always talk about you know how those players have kept it going, and they're you know still viable today, including yourself. What do you think? Yeah, for a hundred percent. Listen, I mean, in the late seventies, uh, I'd say well early 80s outdoor soccer the nsl was starting to just contract and misl kind of just started to rise and it 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 indoor pro indoor soccer went crazy i mean i turned pro went to memphis and it was big time it was tremendous fun and kalamazoo and the and the aisa was a great idea it was basically the second division of like soccer at that point but there's a lot of good players in that league and a lot of guys that i played against at misl you know canton remember that first year canton team had a lot of guys that were a competitive team with the misl probably except for they didn't have maybe the steve jungle or stan stamenkovich who i played with but they had a lot of really good players so you know we all those teams had good players it was an opportunity for some young Americans to get a shot that maybe wouldn't have 
gotten it before and they right. developed and did well. So it was a great idea. Uh, uh, what happened when those teams went under, which they all did, every team right. I played for went under, of course. That's um, more about you guys, than about the game. <laughs> yeah. Some of those guys stayed in the community, turned into uh, coaches in the community, started their run clubs, started to, they earned a living through soccer, but they also really helped spur the growth and of the game in those communities because it was a quality soccer Players. guys that now we're yeah. coaching instead of just somebody's dad who we like read a book and uh you know neil neil ridgeway he stayed in kalamazoo i stayed in kalamazoo i, I went to toledo coach again coach mazer in toledo and uh um but i went back to kalamazoo and started coaching and started a business and whatnot but you look at every city uh that's got a real soccer community now like i, I we have a facility in san diego san diego soccer's players are running clubs still and they're legends in the community and they helped right. spur the game there they were guys that were quality players and you know most of them foreign players but they grew up in a different system but they brought that expertise to coaching and training players it really helped well that's the, the one thing i would say that the you know you talked about the contraction of nasl and the contraction of the MISL at the same time, and all those yep. players who are predominantly foreign born, right. uh, not even green cards, really. Uh, so there were more players for less place spots, less rosters. Right. So it got very competitive. So the situation that I walked into in Kalamazoo was interesting because we had a coach, uh, Chris Bartels, who passed away recently. Um, and our thoughts and prayers go out to his family. But, you know, he gave American players uh, a chance, a chance to play. And I tell you, you talked about Canton Invaders. The Canton Invaders had all former MISL All-Stars on the team. What was it, Don Tobin and uh, a couple of Irish internationals. It was like, wow. And they were playing indoors for a couple of years. And then for a college kid to step on the court, uh, on the floor, on the ice with these guys, you know, because that's a whole new game, the indoor game, right? So it definitely developed foot skill. But I, I wonder how impactful it was on the outdoor game i often wondered my foot skills got better playing indoor but right. you know we also had the go over the line dump it into the corner flood the zone knock the ball back kind of that hockey stuff with your indoor facilities how have you seen them sort of change have they gone from playing the sort of the hockey style to more of a futsal style now yeah can let me start by saying something about chris i went to Bartels. I went to Kalamazoo because of Chris Bartels. Great guy, mm -hmm. awesome person, changed my life, uh, you know, super influential. I could have played elsewhere. I had some opportunities. I was so frustrated with some of the stuff, most of it my own doing, uh, right. that I'd gone through in, in the pro soccer world in just a few years already. I turned pro at 20. Um, and I just was wanted to play. And Chris put together, you know, I had uh, primarily young young Americans on that team, he, he, he talked it and he walked it, you know, he was giving guys a chance and we were, and it was a competitive team with some good players. Everyone got better. I've always, you know, you, know, right. you could, you could speak to this, but I think every player came in there as a rookie from got better quickly because the environment training every day and, and the competition stuff was really good. Um, I still remember because I knew all the guys from Canton. I played against him when he showed me the preseason roster. He held it up and said, oh look God. at his Canton team. <laughs> and I think his face went a little white for a second, like, oh, crap. Uh, but it was it was a great it was a great idea, man. I mean, the, the league was a great idea. It's a little bit like USL and now NISA and like yeah. getting a bit of a, a sort of a second division, a third division for those players to to come to that weren't quite ready for the top tier. Um your question about the development of the game and player development and indoor, I, I, you know, I've had this conversation only a million times. Um, so here's the thing. I mean, all over the world, the real game player development uh, approach is small-sided football. Mm -hmm. That's it. 
Like you can go anywhere, go to Brazil, go to Germany, go anywhere. Well, how do the young players start to play? They play small sided football. A lot of it's unstructured. It's open play. It's in an alley, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In the U S with our climate, the first thing that indoor soccer does is provide an opportunity to play like in Kalamazoo, the first facility that I was a part of that we built there. Uh, you know, there's five, six months a year. You wouldn't play soccer if that facility wouldn't have been there. Um, right. and, and futsal is another indoor game, a version that's very good. I think they're both small sided football. They both offer different things to the players. And I've coached a lot of kids, a lot of really good players who come out of that, that, you know, we, we did both. Um, but it's small-sided football, and and uh, the 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 legacy of the game of the indoor leagues maybe is the introduction of all these facilities across the country that are providing another outlet to play. There's about a thousand, I think, is probably a fair number, give or take. No one knows for sure. Probably indoor facilities across the country. We're by far let's play soccer. We're by far the biggest operator. We have 24 locations. We have five. I'll tell you, we have 5,000 player. I'm sorry, 5,000 teams a week play during the week wow. 5,000 teams yeah. uh it's 25,000 youth players every week play in our buildings during the like they don't play during the outdoor season or something but you know in the winter and even in the summer we have facilities in texas and oklahoma where it's hot they play in the summer because of climate um and, and adult players play around so it's it's definitely a very big part of the of the structure of the game in the u.s it's a very big part of the regular like player youth player program and develop and we rent time to to clubs as well for training so i mean Futsal is great. Indoor soccer is great. I'd say anytime I put, the game is the best teacher, play small-sided football, it's the best thing you can do. And you can hit me with the knocks that some people, the purists, have about indoor, and I can you know, give you the other side. But for sure, I think the, the biggest thing is kids play, adults play. It's really built out uh, an opportunity for, use, for players in this country. Grail? Uh, thanks for joining us, Mike. So j- just one quick comment on that. I, I grew up playing in England as a young kid and, and indoor there, you played with touch lines, you played with low goals and uh, the ball couldn't go above your, your head height, mm-hmm. which I thought was really a great way. It, it's kind of what you're saying about short goal. It just, it, it was, it translated better from a smaller version of the, the, the real game out to a big game. But uh, I wanted to get back to your business. Uh, let's play and, these mm-hmm. 24 fa- facilities, I think that you have in uh, 11 states. I'm just curious, what what goes into the uh, kind of the thinking behind uh, what factors go into where you select locations? What goes into that? Uh, and then in terms of just the growth uh, of the business, are you going to just continue to put more and more facilities? Our out goal there? is worldwide domination. I could put my little finger up <laughs> if you want. Uh, domination. Yeah, um, that is our goal. We jokingly say that. Uh, so we're, we're always looking for growth. We just closed on a facility in San Antonio, which is a great soccer market. It was an existing operator, great location. Um, what goes into it? So I, I, I started in Kalamazoo where Kevin was. Uh, I, I coached another pro indoor team and played, came back, started some camps and was developing a sort of a business training players and stuff. And I, it got to the point, I said, I need a facility. That's the next step. And so, and the climate. So I built a facility. There were some investors and great partners and business mentors and, um, and, you know, typical entrepreneur sort of did everything in the place. I was afraid to hire anyone, afraid I wouldn't be able to pay them, you know, and just basically killed myself for a couple of years, helping get it rolling. And then we realized that, hey, you know, this is, there's a market for this elsewhere. And so as I moved to other cities, uh, to Lansing, to Grand Rapids, to Grand Blanc, to South Bend, to, to Novi, which is a Detroit suburb, uh, you know, 
we obviously developed a model that really because every market is a little different, but we learned how to site select and what sort of uh, demographics we needed within say a 10, 15 minute travel distance from our facility. Uh, a lot of people think indoor soccer is like all these youth players, it is, but you gotta have a strong adult market because you, the only way you can really make that work is uh, to fill the evening hours when kids can't be playing nine, 10 o'clock at night on school nights and work nights and stuff like that. Um, and so there's a, there's a, you know, we just got very, uh, I guess, systematic and understanding our business model. And, um, and then uh, 10 years ago, actually about 12, I started talking about it with uh, a, another group that had 13 facilities. We had six, I think, maybe they had 14, we had six at the time called Let's Play. I had sort of promised my investors I'd work to, to get them out there, even though I'm old, they're older. And, um, <laughs> and so I, I did a deal with the founder of Let's Play to kind of merge uh, my company, the two biggest operators come together. And so we just continue to grow. I mean, we look for opportunities, we, we build them. Although in the last few years, we've been a little more interested in, in trying to find locations that we think we can add value to an existing operator that maybe is ready to exit or, or it's not working that well. And, uh, you know, COVID of course has created immense problems for everybody mm -hmm. in sports, every industry, right. I suppose, except for Amazon. Um, and uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, we, we've acquired other operators and, and we try to add value to those facilities. It could be upgrades. It could be just managing it, a different approach to management, but our, well, you, yeah. You know, the business now from the ground up, I mean, cause you know, right. you turned, turned off the lights and swept the floor in the early days of this whole thing. So um, broke up fights and unstopped toilets. Uh, I mean, you know, part of it, I, I yeah. tell you half of the, uh, the indoor stuff is like the fights that happen at night. It's like, Oh God, fellas, easy. Take yeah. it. It's always guys. You know, I don't think fights you asked out the me, though, game. Kevin, I would say that you asked me about has the game changed? Well, when mm -hmm. we first opened in Kalamazoo, it was it was quite successful right away. Yeah. But the level of play, the level of the ability to play indoor definitely right. evolved very quickly because so many people came in and the skills of those players improved dramatically. And we we uh, one of our models that let's play is, you know, joy the joy of the game. And, uh, you know, we all, everyone on those four of us, four other people on the board with me that run this company. And, and we have great employees, a great team up and down, like managers in each facility and, and staff and whatnot. It's a lot of work to run a facility, obviously mm -hmm. they're, they're the stars, but we, but we've all seen that player come in the building who maybe isn't that good or the pudgy eight-year-old or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And indoor draws them out of that shell. Mm -hmm. You know, the indoor gets you, you can't hide on the outside of the field because it's, action you know you can't and so a lot of players we've seen a lot of players come into the facility that were not strong or pudgy like i said and become great high school players or even playing college or whatever and it's like we indoor has a lot to do with that so because that that pudgy kid was nick o'shea and yeah. he learned to play at the highest level there you <laughs> go I'm, I'm gonna tell nick to listen to this I you know i down here I, I tell the, uh, you know, plus with the little kids, the, the walls keep the ball in play. I've noticed that with the, it's, it's, uh, it's not constantly going out of bounds. So to sort of counter that. And before, you know, off air, we were talking about, you know, Iceland, the Iceland model, which living in Kalamazoo for a couple of years, my God, that Felt was like it. based on the Iceland model. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you talk about a San Diego facility is different too, but I guess, and Texas, but maybe there you're avoiding the heat, right? Where in Kalamazoo, you're avoiding the, the, you know, the snow and the hundred percent in Texas and Oklahoma, we have big summer youth seasons. I mean, because of the heat. Um, yeah. So it's a little bit different cycle there, but the uh, same level of participation is very high. Sam, 
Yeah, building off that a little bit, Mike, I'm curious. I mean, all of us on this show, you know, would be would love to have one of these facilities built nearby that we could go. But I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of it drawing people to the game that maybe didn't even think or know much about soccer beforehand. It happens all the time. I mean, it's here's a, it, a lot at the adult level, which is interesting, but also at the youth level. We've had total non-soccer teams at the youth level come in, like baseball teams or whatever, come in and play soccer. And kids from school, hey, I'm putting a team together. And a friend from school is a non-soccer player, starts playing soccer. And indoor does provide the action that is like attractive to anyone to play a sport. You go in, you're involved. And then and at adult at the adult level, it's taken over like that company softball softball team that maybe yeah. when we were younger, you know, was kind of the main thing. Now there's company or soccer co-ed teams yeah. like at most of our facilities. Co-ed is probably one of the biggest leagues, if not the biggest league, because of just the popularity with the adult players to have that social play soccer, go out and have a beer and a slice of pizza or whatever after the well, game. So I got about, I got about two, or, two or three of my buddies have actually met their wives in co-ed soccer so uh, we, we've know, had that happen in our facility also <laughs> and, and some of them met their ex-wives in, in the facility as well so yeah now do yeah. a lot of these people who play in your 24 facilities know that you really never played the ball one touch uh a- actually uh, my son actually plays the ball <laughs> one touch really well which everyone who sees his video he's a he's a pro player like everybody says how did he come from you you never passed the ball like that so just for, yeah. for our listeners uh, all eight of them uh, every time Mike received the ball, he just stepped on it. He was one of those players. It's like, okay, that's a fast break. Let's slow it down. Let's slow it down. I don't want to run so much. That's right. And you lived from Meg and me in practice. That was the, uh, right. the whole thing. Stick that's it, right. Stick it out. So, um, all right, so where do we go from here? So you see world domination. Um, you're, have you f- sort of dovetailed your uh, facilities into the futsal game as well? Because we both played against Keith Tozer. Uh, Keith was the national team coach for futsal for a long time. That seems to be growing as well. Um, you know, they're talking about turning a lot of the unused tennis courts into um, sort of futsal. Areas. Yeah, it's, is, that a, is that a growth? Uh, we have some. For you guys? We have a few futsal courts. Um, mm-hmm. uh, futsal is an interesting. Like, there's a there's some. You know, the soccer community gets a little segmented when you talk about, well, you know, you got some people are futsal believers. Oh, you got to play futsal to develop players. That's what happens in Brazil or something. And, and uh, you know, I, I would just, on the topic of player development, which I know you guys are interested in, I listen to your show quite a bit, actually. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, all those games offer something different for the player. So, like, my last team that I took through, a Kalamazoo team that ended up being a very good team, I took them through for several years. We did all of this stuff. We played futsal, played indoor soccer a lot, small-sided at training all the time, of course. And um, each element, each environment offers something or puts a different emphasis on the, for the players. Mm-hmm. So you can find your pros and cons on each. But, uh, you know, obviously I feel like the game is the best teacher, and the more you can expose those players to regularly that, that – that stretches them in some way, they will grow. But we have some futsal, like in one of our facilities in Kalamazoo, we have a futsal court. Uh, futsal is a growing thing in some of the markets. It, it Futsal tends to be uh, really secondary to, to traditional indoor soccer, as we'll call it. Um, it, it seems to come from like a, a particular club that has a big uh, a big club that maybe like really pushes futsal or something like that. So it creates those players playing futsal, but uh, indoor soccer is, you know, at this point, way, way more prevalent than, than futsal is in terms of participation. I know I saw it as a different season, you know, with the, uh, you know, in high school, I played soccer, then basketball, then baseball, and you went for your seasons. And when you become, a, when you fall in love with the game of soccer, you can play, you need to play 11 months basically to be 
sort of competitive. And it, it seemed to me that the indoor game was just another way to learn the game. And it was a, it, it offered some variety, I think, from the outdoor game. It did change the, your foot skills. They're tighter. Um, doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, uh, stand on the ball and juggle around, dribble around with it without playing, you know, the vision that you need for outdoor. But um, yeah, it seems to mix it up for kids, especially. And I, you know, I love that point you made about, uh, you know, other athletes from other teams suddenly play indoor soccer and they enjoy it. They're like, wow, this is uh this is a great game. And I think so. So the variety is there. Sam, yeah, the, 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 I'm sorry, to jump, the player Maybe. development part of it is like, uh, you know, I don't know, back when I'm, I'm old, back when I was in high school, you know, it was the same group of guys played every sport. There was a certain right. group, of, you know, the quarterback on the football team played, started on the basketball team and maybe pitched on the baseball team or whatever. Right. And now I think all those sports are more specialized than they were back in the, you know, seventies and in eighties for that matter. Um, there's just, the, it's more competitive and players, I think, gravitate to their one main sport at an earlier age than they did back in the day. And soccer is a skill sport. And if you want to compete, I mean, to play it well, you got to be a technical player. And uh, right. and I think the game has improved in the U.S. I'm, you know, the, the, the structure is interesting. I, I can uh, I, I think that we still de we develop a lot of really good, uh, good players, a lot of good pros. Like when everybody knocks on the U.S., I'm always like defensive, like, hey, man, we got a lot of good pros. We've always had a lot of good pros. We had good pros in the 80s and the 90s, et cetera, et cetera. We still. We don't develop enough special players still. And I think that goes back to we don't play enough uh, small sided uh, and, and open play as kids. And we also coach it out of them. You know, like I was a player that over dribbled my whole life. Uh, Kevin, you, you probably attest this, but I became a particular type of player because I did that. Right. And so I had to be so stubborn as a kid that every time everyone yelled, pass the ball, pass the ball, I refused to do it. That really helped my, my dribbling. My skills were like higher than frankly everybody's. And so in the U.S., we coach that out, and you guys, did you guys, you guys watch a lot of Premier League? Like I said, listen mm -hmm. to show. Uh, you see the game Liverpool. I don't watch Premier League that much. I'm a Real Madrid fan. Have been for 30 years. But uh, like James Rodriguez, mm -hmm. two minutes into that game, a ball pops to James Rodriguez. You remember the, the the play? Yeah, the pass. He's one touch slips a ball behind the defender into mm -hmm. that space. Finish two minutes in. It's one nothing. We, we have yet to produce a Hamas Rodriguez. You know why? Well, because he'd have been yelled at his whole life to press, to tackle harder, run harder, right. press, press more full field. Like he, 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 he's a specialist with a unique skill set. And when I watched him come to Madrid that first year for Madrid, he was, a, he was an impact player because he could play a ball inch perfect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ronaldo was a recipient, of a lot of those balls. And, uh, you know, he, he's just a like he, we kind of coach that out of players too much, you know, like right. we just, our system is looking for that. And there's nothing wrong with like the hustle and bustle and the effort that the American player has that attribute. And a lot of our players in Europe are bringing that to their team. You know um, that's a characteristic. That's really good. That determination and grit and everything, but we need a few players who could be more of that special player that can to, to, to maybe win the world cup. I think we need to produce a couple players like that uh, to change a game with a single play. We, we, Mike, we just, we talk a lot on the show about right. that specifically, yep. especially when we watch college soccer, like the playmakers that we remembered when we played don't exist in a lot of, a lot of the conferences because they're not playing that style. They're playing very long ball. It's all very physical. And I think you're right that it's, that's almost players are kind of like uh, dissuaded from playing that way. You know, just having, you know, just natural creativity is almost, uh, pushed down by coaches. 
Yeah, I think I think uh, there's I, I don't know. Uh, I'm on Twitter, and a few years ago, I posted a goal that Akron scored. Uh, it was really impressive. It was like 37 passes or something. I was like, yeah, I'd love to see more college teams go out and just just have the aspire to play this way. Like right. it was fantastic. And I was like, that that's how the game should be played. It was fantastic. And there's a place, obviously, for putting it in the box and challenging and stuff. But but to not have that element, we're like we're doing our players a disservice to not reward that. You know, like that. The 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 coaching thing is always like you know. Uh, and Kevin, wait, you and I can joke about me over dribbling, but, but, you know, like when I was coaching kids and, and uh, you know, if a kid went to take a player on it and it was in the right situation to do it and he lost the ball, I wouldn't berate him for losing the ball. Every team we played against would be like, pass the ball and yell at the, if their players did that, just because the defender made a good play or your player mistouched the ball. But if it's don't discourage that creativity, encourage it. And if you have a player who can do that, Holy cow, man, you know, Put, it, put that player in a position where they can be successful and help your team and develop their game because we, we just seem to coach that out of players. Like I said, we have so many players playing and so many good players. You know, my son played in the academy system. It's now moved to MLS. I assume it'll be very similar there. There was a lot of really good players and good teams and stuff in that. But even in that system, you know, there is an element of everybody looking to get the win as opposed to like right. develop that player that is really going to go higher than most of the other players on the in the structure. You know, Sam, this is what you talk about all the time, you know, about yeah. the basic, you know, lack thereof in the American game. That way we are catching up. Uh, yep. It was discouraged when we came up, Mike. And I, I, yep. I don't know what that is. I think it's partly an American mentality of that hustle, athleticism. I also think it's it, that coupled with sort of most of us were brought up on the English style of play, which is, you know, knock it forward, get stuck in a mixer, you know, everybody kick anything yep. that moves. If it doesn't move, kick it till it does move. It's like, um, do you think that there's a, there's an American style that's starting to form now? Was that for me? Yeah. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear what the other two have to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I think I think we have a, a bit of a style, but, you know, we're such a huge country that uh, it probably varies a little. You know, there's pockets here and pockets there. You know, everybody says it. I think this is true. The Hispanic community, you know, has so much talent in the area we're talking about. And it's yeah. not and, and they, it's it's cultural. It's like, you know, the emphasis that we're talking about, you know, what players and, and their parents or their coaches like or encourage. You know, and uh, so I, I definitely think there's a lot of his untapped Hispanic talent, you know, and, uh, you know, we have this place in, in San Antonio that we just purchased. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, I'm sure the talent level there is very high. The the, the uh, percentage of Hispanics that play at our facility is high. And, and, you know, maybe there's something we can do there to help identify players because, um, you yeah, know, and, and there's other things like people always talk about uh, pay to play keeps people out of right. the system. It does. It does in some areas. Um but, you know, uh, we've made Kevin. I mean, come on. It's a light year from when. I mean, yeah. I think it, it's so much progress. It's like if you want to be a, a critic or evaluate where you are, you can you make sense to focus on things we're not doing as well as maybe we can or we need to make progress in. But but you have to always say, uh, boy, the game is just so far from where it was even 20 years ago. Right. Leaps you know, much less 30 or 35 or what have you. But, yeah, there's so yeah. much progress. I think another thing that's really great for the game is all these pro teams. Not just MLS, but USL and this NISA league that's now starting. Um, it's like the Division Two and Three. There's a lot of players that I think are a little under the radar coming out of college that will get opportunities there, and some of them will develop into to really good pros. 
And uh, I just had a meeting this morning with a guy about doing a combine exactly for that. Like just, just to try to help players that are under the radar match up with an agent or a club and see if they can make the jump. Cause it's hard. It's yeah. easier than when you were Kevin than when you did, yeah, because absolutely. there's so many opportunities, but it's still, if you're not that top tier player, you might end up being better at 26, but it's hard to get found. You know, but I always say this, uh, you know, like some of the under twenties, the guys who play for the under 20 team don't always make the full national team. In fact, most don't. And so you say there is the cream does rise if they're given opportunities. And I think with the advent, of a lot of these leagues, it's giving players uh, a lot of, a lot more opportunities. And you see that the cream does rise at that point because they're given that opportunity. So uh, we got to get going, but I just, uh, I want to come back to Chris Bartels before we, uh, we sign off here um, about him. You know, he was influential in your life. The one thing that that people didn't understand back then was the pressure that he was under for carrying American players. He did not um, sign all the foreign guys because, uh, you know, people don't remember this. You had to, like, have two American players on your team in the NASL or the MISL. And those were generally not were foreign born as well. So it was like such a scam to try and somehow get in and get the experience. We started out as all American players. And we just got beat up bad uh, for the first month and a half. Uh, and he didn't make any changes. He stuck with us. And eventually the level sort of comes to you. It slows down. You're able to play. And we hung in there for the middle part of the season. And towards the end, we started putting up some good numbers, started winning games. And so that was all Chris Bartels. That was uh, Chris Bartels. Chris, and Chris, I'm still I, friends with I, all those guys. A lot of those guys I played with. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the foreign player thing uh, versus the American player back at that time was a huge issue compared mm -hmm. to today. When I played for Memphis, I mean, I respected all of I played with some great players. It was fantastic. I learned a lot. I got better. Played with Stamankovic, which most right. people don't remember him. Yeah. But. yeah. Uh, and Holton Bind won a World Cup. However, what I was going to say was my beef about the foreign players at the time was not those guys mm -hmm. because, you know, they were fantastic. It was sort of that middling player, you know, that, that came. And he was a 28-year-old experienced pro and better than a 22-year-old kid out of college just because of the experience, not because he's more talented per se, you know what I mean? Like, and so I was yeah. like, you're taking the job there and the opportunity from an American player could be just as good. And, but it was just the easy way out is I'll get the guys. And also the, the money was very different then. you know, you can make a lot of money playing indoor in the U S versus, you know, second division in England or Germany or what have you, or even first division in many cases. So when Chris did that, I mean, I went to Kalamazoo because of Chris, I mean, I, I really, he's a, was a great guy and 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 uh and he stuck to it like you said he believed in it and i, I it took some courage and just some you know values and belief system to say hey i'm going to stick with these guys and we're going to make it work and and uh kudos to him and it, we all benefited yeah and i i never had a problem with the the big players who were over here like like a rodney marsh is you know came and stayed uh pato marhetic came and stayed raised his family here you know so you become part of the american system right it's like what you talked about the journeyman coming over 26 years old for a laugh a year or two and and uh, and heading back so it's been a wonderful ride mike uh, like i said some of my best friends are from those years uh, those long bus rides and uh this the crazy times of uh you know training every day, having five V2s and having a great laugh after the games. No and, doubt. Uh, I remember the, you know, the, I remember Chris, one thing about Chris was the first game we had, there was no beer in our locker room and half the players went crazy. I think a few of them were born again Christians. Like, well, we don't drink. It's like, well, we do. Um, I always tell this on air though. I said to uh, uh, Brian McBride, I said, well, 
you know, they told you to never talk to the press until you had a beer or two in the locker room, took a shower. He goes, beer in the locker room. How old are you? I'm like, wow, that doesn't happen anymore. No, the, 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 the Ronaldo lifestyle didn't exist back then. Half the guys <laughs> I first turned pro with were smoking and having a beer as soon as the game was over. So Right. Yeah, we're all Mickey Mantles back then. So <laughs> this is great. All right. Mike Garrett uh, from Let's Play Soccer. Uh, he's coached. He's uh, played. He's uh, produced a player and players. Uh, and you've got to give a shout out to your daughter. She's a, uh, a great dancer as well. So yeah. she's kind of like you on the ball, man. Megan, me in practice every day. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Mike Garrett, thanks so much for joining us on Over the Ball. Keep up the good work and, uh, you know, promoting this game in this country so we thank can, you guys uh, really enjoyed it take care i want to win a world cup before the english that's no my doubt life's goal i'm All with right, you thanks, on that Mike. one take care hey remember to tweet us at over the ball like us on facebook and instagram and write a review in fact make us one of your favorites it makes a big difference I was great getting caught up with my old teammate and uh, coach. Yeah, it was not fun to coach, I would imagine. Uh, but uh, it was good to ca get caught up with my guy. Probably as emotional as I was, Fleming. I know that nobody <laughs> enjoyed the experience when they didn't make the proper pass playing with me. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's funny. The first year that we played, uh, you know, definitely outmatched. And so it used to be you'd only get a two-minute penalty if you had six fouls in, in the quarter. So... Uh, no, no, no fouls. There was no limit. You either got a, a, a carded one where you had to go in the box and play shorthanded or nothing. So the first yeah. year was out of control because there was no cumulative fouling, right? So the second year calmed down a little bit. It was like, we're talking about rule changes earlier yeah. in the show, you know, yeah. that was one that definitely made it better. I was just never a big, I, I hate to say it, but I was, I mean, I've played indoor my whole life as have you guys, but I've never been a huge fan of the game. And I always felt it was so unfair to goalies. I felt like they were like lacrosse goalies in oh, indoor they're, soccer. They're they had no they're chance stars. though. They had no chance. Yes, they do because it's small. The goal is small. And what, yeah. where, they, where you score most of your goals is the ball would come, you know, you take a shot and you're wide by two feet. It yeah. comes back. It's back in play. And yeah. so they have to do the opposite smother, you know, that turn the back, like let yeah. the ball go past them and turn and take it. Um, and then, so what, for me, it turned into be a lot of, um, I became a defender professionally because yeah. you're, you're basically boxing out like in basketball, mm -hmm. a lot of times on the shot, following the shot, you know, um, doubling down on the ball, which was, which yeah. helped me outdoors a lot. And again, the foot skill that's built, Man, I, you know, the, the skill level was really, really high. Yeah. I, I played a lot of, you know, pickup obviously after college and stuff indoor. And the thing that drove me crazy is guys who tried to play like long balls all right, the time right, right. in indoor. And you're like, you're so missing the idea of what this game well, is. And that's just that's hammering the, it to a guy's head. The chance of scoring on a header indoors is like one in 50. Actually, in the indoor game, there are, you can, but the thing yeah. with the indoor game was you had to get over that third line before you yeah. could, could knock in the long ball. And, um, you know, if you put it too high, it's, it's out of the, it's out of the rink. So anyway, it was good to catch up with. Oh, me. he's I great. Just, what a great business. These guys. Yeah. What and, a great business that is. These guys are just so passionate about the game and to continue the, uh, to pay it forward actually with a new generation of young kids, his son and the amount of people he's coached. It's just, I, I just love it. Like I yeah, said, and I, I loved hearing him say that, you know, the creativity is coached out of a lot of players. Cause the three of us totally agree with that. It's like, right. we're just, I'm waiting for that playmaker 
he probably exists in the crop of these really good young talented players that we have like Weston McKinney or somebody like that. But like, you know, that, that guy, the Iniesta or somebody like Special, that, who's just yeah. seeing the seams. Right. And we're, we're inventive culturally. I mean, others, yeah. you know, uh, you know, rip off a lot of our ideas, uh, you know, and even you know, jazz and hip hop and blues and break dancing and skateboarding and all this stuff that yeah. Americans sort of, comedy that we're known for um you know i can't wait till that inventive creative style takes over with the united states and i think sam you've talked about this all the time mm -hmm. about the college game and how you know some of the divisions are all kick and run and it's, yeah. uh, it's yeah. not great well and, and his so. and he brought up hispanic players which was a big thing paul gardner who's been on with us many times is yeah. beating that drum constantly that we mm -hmm. we have so much hispanic talent in this country that we're not harnessing Okay, so um, MLS season's coming up pretty soon. Quickly, you got a survey, huh, Grill? Yeah, so uh, in my inbox a few days ago from MLS headquarters uh, on Fifth Avenue came this very extensive survey about uh, going out to the fan base, um, probably because I've gone to some NYCFC games, just asking all sorts of questions about a 10 to 15 minute survey about my inclination to go to a game based on COVID protocols, what would be important to me, what would make me go to a game what would make me not go to a game it was I, I thought it was really impressive and really thorough and clearly they're just trying to figure out with the challenges they're going to have moving forward just getting fans like yeah. how can we maximize if we're only going to have three thousand fans per game or whatever it ends up being initially how can we make sure we get those people maximize the experience yeah, yeah. Yeah, because look, it's uh, big changes, but there's going to be uh, the changes are changing, right? So it's a different, different. Uh, I was really of... impressed. I just I, I thought that MLS had really done their homework, and they were just really thoughtful questions and and ones that um, that would be important to me if I was deciding Good. to go to a game. Like if people weren't going to wear masks, I'd be like, "F it, I'm not going to a game." Are you kidding me? And you're a marketing sales guy, so this is so uh Sam, what do you got for us this week? Yeah, so just uh, one question here. It's on the Champions League as we were talking earlier about the oh, the new no. proposal for the new setup. Uh, I looked into the history a little bit. Um, so yeah. prior to what we now have is the Champions League, we had what was called the European Cup, which was before my time. Maybe you guys remember I that. I remember um, it. Which easy, is, easy was what many would call a true cup. You know, it was just a sure. knockout tournament. Um, and initially we had one club from each country plus the defending champion. So it was much more spread out. Wow. Uh, this lasted from the inception in 1955 all the way to 91. Uh, 92 was rebranded as the Champions League. That's when the group stages came in. Uh, with more participants from each country. I won't go through all the changes, but it's evolved little by little. And as we were saying earlier, kind of coming closer and closer to a league, you know, versus a right, uh, right. cup. Um, so anyway, since the rebrand, which was 1992, uh, the Champions League has been won by clubs from seven countries. Uh, they're Spain, Germany, England, Italy, France, Portugal, and the Netherlands. So I was curious about how, you know, where the winners came from and if it was more diverse prior to this. So my question is in its initial form from 1955 to 1991, the tournament was won three times only by a club, not from one of the countries that I just mentioned. Uh, can you name them? Oh, and not just name the those countries because I was immediately get it. Yeah, I was going to go to Bayern and I was going to go to Real Madrid. So it's not those two countries. You would have um, to say. You can just give me a country. Is is fine. Hungary. I'm going to say Portugal. So in Portugal was one that I mentioned. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, right. so I'm so I'm not going to go with Portugal. Try to have your coffee before you come. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. So you got to yeah, you got to think of the uh, the, re- yeah. the secondary leagues here. Okay. Like, yeah, just what it would be like. Uh, I'm thinking like Eastern European. Was it Eastern European countries? Uh, yeah, one of them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to say Hungary. I already okay. said Hungary, so you have to say something. Yeah, okay. Else. No, I'm going to go. I'm going to go along with you. Okay, right. so uh, the three are magpies. Celtic from Scotland, obviously. Oh, wow. 66, 67. Um, yeah. Stoa Bucharest from Romania, mm. 85, 86. And oh, Rest- you know who played for them? Who was that? That was Haji who played for them, right? Uh, yeah, He's he did. Haji. He was the and, player um, then, yeah. And then Red Star Belgrade uh, from Yugoslavia in oh, 1990. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, it was interesting to look in, and I was kind of hoping to find an even broader range. I mean, that's a long time. Yeah. Only three really teams, is. not from those countries. And, and you look at it, it's a lot of Madrid, Milan, Bayern. Yeah, it's a well, lot of the same names. Doesn't Bayern have the most combined European Cups and Champions League? I thought that was, or is it Real Madrid? I thought that was Real Madrid. It's one but... of the. It's one of the two. I thought. I thought Bayern had like seven or something like that. All right, guys. Between, so, uh, yeah, we'll have to. I'll look, I'll look that up. Good stuff today. Yeah. I'm going to watch uh, the Olympic qualifiers. Uh, yeah, today. that would be. We can't really report on it, but um, you know, I have to get uh, more up to speed with that with those teams. I, well, look, remember the under twenties? How much we enjoyed watching yeah. them play, and Dest came out of there, and a lot of great players that we mm-hmm. uh, that we that we watched. I love to watch them develop like that. You know, in yeah, the young age and see them kind of uh, flirt with making the uh, the full national team squad. So, mm-hmm. all right. That's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. I'd like to thank uh, Mike Garrett, uh, Let's Play Soccer. He's the CEO of that. Was a was a great player in his own right and a, a good coach. Enjoyed getting caught up with Mike. For Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn. This is Over the Ball, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB. Over the Ball.